Welcome to Covenant Life Church, a ministry that is committed to helping you discover Christ's purpose for your life and leading you towards your best existence by providing you with meaningful ways to affect positive change in your world. Join Pastor Shane as he delivers a powerful and inspirational message for your life today. How many of you in this room got talent? Let me see your hands. Talent, you got talent. You got some talent. Okay, I got happy you don't think you got no talent. But before it's all said and done, you're going to realize you got some talent in this place. You got some talent. I want to tell you about a cat, though, um, that I met in Florida when I was pastoring down there. He was a part of our competition that we were having. I know competition, talent competitions in church, probably not a good idea unless you're raising money for missions. In which case, it's a brilliant idea because we raise thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, in fact, of dollars through this platform to spread, spread the gospel overseas. And the winner of the talent competition got to go on one of our mission trips. We hosted about 16 a year down there in Florida, and they got to go on one of those cost-free. They got to do that, so it was sort of they benefited. The church was encouraged, and it was just a lot of fun. We saw acts like magic shows, but they all had one minute. You had one minute to bring your very best talent before the Lord. We saw drama. We saw some things I can't talk about in church. We saw, and it happened in church, and we saw some people that thought they had talent. Well, they did have talent, but they thought they had talent in a particular area, like singing, and they did not have any talent in this area. And I was really surprised because one of the talented, because they were talented, just not in this area, people got up to sing. And the way that you voted on who went on to the next round was that they all had a name and you donated money in their proverbial bucket. And so if they, whoever had the most got to go to the next round. So I don't know who this guy's ringer was, but every week, and we did this for like six weeks, he keeps going on to the next round. And I'm going, what on earth is going on? And I said, I know his mama don't love him this much because this joker is going on to each additional round, and he was awful. So I started asking around. It's like, yo, what gives? How come this cat keeps going on to the next round? Clearly, he doesn't have any talent. And then then an investigation, they said, oh, I gave to him. I said, why on earth would you give? This is a talent competition for missions. You are lying in God's house. They said, well, if I don't give, that joker will get mad at me. I don't want him to get upset with me. So I make sure I put money in their bucket every week. Are you kidding me? I said, you're doing it because you're scared that he's going to shake you down after church. Like, did you vote for me? You better vote for me because I want to go to the next round. Like, what was going on here? What all comes to a head? We get to the quarterfinals. We just got a few in the competition left. And he gets up there and he starts to sing. He's got one minute to bring his best. And I'm watching this. And I'm like in tears. Not because it's good, but because it's so bad. Kind of like that baby you hear crying in the other room. They're still crying because it was so bad. And so it was so terrible. So terrible. And we're like, okay, that's it. Your minute's up. And he's like, I'm not finished yet. And keep in mind, he's singing God rest ye merry gentlemen. But he was anything but gentle when he was singing the song. So we're like, no, no, you got to go. He's making up new lyrics and new verses. I got another verse. So we're like trying to get the hook out. And he's like, I'm not finished. And I'm like, are you sure you're singing God rest ye merry gentlemen or God rest ye merry mental man? You need to chill out. That is wrong. You need to get off the platform. Well, we finally got him off. He didn't go to the next round. Thank God they quit voting for 
for him. And we helped him to find his other talent. The way that you have talent. God has wired each of us with distinct and specific talents. He has wired you different than anybody in the universe. And that talent is meant to be on display for the community and for the kingdom of God. A couple of things. I want to set this passage up for you. The scripture is found in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 14. But it comes on the hinge of a question that's being asked. Jesus is talking about some things that are going to be happening in the end, the last days. And he's talking about Jerusalem, that the, the, the temple itself was going to be destroyed, and that there's going to be a time where the world begins to sew up its, its life and gives on new life, that there's going to be an afterlife, that there's going to be eternity, begins to have this conversation. And the disciples go like, when is all this going to happen? What are some of the signs that we'll see? And Jesus starts rehearsing. He says, there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be famine. There's going to be a lot of earthquakes. There's going to be pestilences, like storms that are going to be happening all over the world. There's going to be a rise in the offense that people carry in their heart. It's going to be a time marked by offense where there'll be more people offended. You're going to see that. And he said, because people are going to love to sin so much, they're going to quit loving one another. And their faith is going to be in decline. That's going to be a marker of the end. And then he says that the gospel is going to be preached in the end and, and to all the world, and then the end will come. The final picture before Christ's return is this one of harvest. And so then Jesus tells some stories. It really starts in Matthew chapter 24. He talks about two servants, and he says, he has two servants, one is faithful that continues to press on, but because of the delay, there's another one that's unfaithful. And because God's taking a little longer to return for the church, people begin to do some stuff, just basically living just like the world, losing their distinction as the community of faith. And they begin to smite people, hurt them. And the Bible talks about sort of the way that they're going to spend eternity in a place that he says will have weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then we have three parables in chapter 25. The first being about the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. There's 10. And back then they had a wedding party system that was based on an approximate time. They didn't have clocks and calendars. Everything was sort of governed by where the sun was in the sky. But when you arrive, could always be affected by circumstances that are beyond your control. You could meet a, some bandits along the way. You could have bad weather like many of you may have trucked through this morning to get to church. You could have had a situation happen at home. And so you say, I'm coming. And in this case, the groom tells the bridal party, I'm coming. Be ready. But they don't know when he's coming. And they all have collected some oil. Except some didn't collect enough. And so at a late hour, the, there's the cry, the bridegroom comes and some don't have enough. And they expect those that have some left over to share, but they said, if we share with you, then we won't have enough. And so that's the first story. Some are not ready. And then you have the third story, and it talks about the sheep and the goats, and it's this analogy, if you will, of what faithfulness and unfaithfulness looks like. That the sheep are those that perform the works of the kingdom. Visit those in prison. Help the poor. Or extend their hand to the needy. Open their home to people that need to come in. Those that are the goats don't do any of those kinds of things. They neglect their duty. And in so doing, miss 
their mark with Christ. The story we're going to encounter falls right in the middle of these two. It's sort of a bridge. And it helps us to understand the posture that God wants and expects from us as the people of God. The place where our hearts sit. What it is that he wants from us. The actions that he expects. The, what faithfulness looks like and what unfaithfulness looks like. Matthew chapter 25 verse 14. For it's, verse 14, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Will be like a man going on a journey. Who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master... You delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. He said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But them from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Quite ominous, aren't they? These stories that have been strung together. Sort of the last words of Jesus in Matthew's reckoning. Preparing the ground for what is about to happen with his death and burial and resurrection. But also with an eye towards the activity of the church beyond the moments in which they now live. There will come a time where Christ is going to leave the earth. And he puts into the capable hands of the church the ministry of the Lord, of the kingdom, the ministry of heaven now belongs decidedly in the hands of the church. The church has to then execute these actions that God has given them faithfully to live into the virtue of the kingdom to produce a kingdom-sized harvest. And each of them have talent. One has one. One has two, and one has five. 
You think, well, that's kind of wrong. How come this person only gets one talent, this one two, and this one five? Why don't they all get the same? They're given the talents based on their ability. Some have more ability, and so they are expected to steward more of what God's given them, but some only have one. Which that's just bad, you know? I mean, it's a one-talent person. What can you expect from a one-talent individual? Let me make something clear. A talent is a lot. One talent, if you've got one talent, it's enough. We know people that have made one song and that one song has produced enough money for them to live a lifetime. One talent is enough. And in this case, one talent is the equivalent in our currency of somewhere around $600,000 that has been placed in their hands to steward, to produce something with the talent that they've been given. Now somewhere along the way, this idea of talent has been incorporated in our vocabulary and our minds to be much more than just a weight measure that values money. For us, it's what we possess. And John Calvin's somewhat responsible for this because he says your talents is the way in which you breathe, the way in which you think, the way in which you move, not just the gifts that you receive from the Holy Spirit, but also what you were born with, that that's all your talents and it's all given by God. To be used in such a way to bring something forth from the life that you've been given. You are responsible for something. And sometimes we have people that operate outside of their talent pool. Like I described earlier. How many of you have a friend that you do not go to when you need encouragement because they do not have that grace upon their life? Some people that will just discourage you just by looking at them. Well, I, I, my brother-in-law was telling a story some years back about a situation that he had. He had one of the youth at his church that was trying to encourage them after they had lost their fourth child in a miscarriage. Very tragic. And he's having to stand before the church after several times of losing uh, children and bring more disappointment. At this time, though, they waited till they were like 20 weeks along to announce because they were afraid that a miscarriage would happen. But in week 24, he had to break the tragic news. There were lots of tears in the church. Everybody was crying. Lots of comfort. But one of the youth meaning to encourage comes up to my brother-in-law and says this. He says, hey, I, I know you feel kind of bad about losing the baby, but I've been thinking maybe you shouldn't feel bad. Because it could be that God was saving you. How do you know that your wife didn't have the Antichrist inside of her womb? My brother-in-law looked at him and was like, I don't even know what to say to you. You're not encouraging me. That's probably the wrong thing to say. He said, I couldn't do anything but laugh. He goes, it's a terrible thing to say. It was awful. But yet it was a situation that had a pretty sizable impact in that particular moment because the talent was not being used well. It was a misplaced talent. So there's a sense in which each of us have talents, so there's this way that we need to discover what it is that God has wired us for and lean into that, but also to not lean into graces that we don't have, the grace that isn't on our life. But all of us are still required on some level to give what it is that we possess. But I'm really interested in this fella that was given the one talent, why is it that the ones with five and two are able to produce and this one doesn't? Well, Scripture's actually kind of clear and directs us specifically to the reason. It's fear. I was afraid because I knew you 
master. To be a hard person who, listen, reaps where you have not sown and gathers where you have not spread seed. You are that kind of God. You are that kind of master. And I don't want you in, I, I don't want you to think that I didn't do it for any other reason but, but fear. I was afraid that if I didn't bring you back at least what belonged to you, that you would be upset. Now, it starts here where the problems are, are, are coming forth because he misapprehends who God is completely. That God isn't a tyrant. Now listen to the way that he describes God. As someone that is willing to go places and to collect from people that don't owe him anything. Basically that God is a thief. He's an unjust God. And that he is a tyrant that can exact judgment however he wants. Um, even without discrimination. Just bring forth pain and suffering that way. Because he gathers where he's not sown. So he's misunderstanding God. And I want to tell you something. Your misunderstanding of who God is. Will cause you to fundamentally miss the mark. When it comes to your talent. Over and over and over again. Our talent is meant to be in service to a God that's not tyrannical like that. If that's your God, a God of judgment, a God of wrath, a God that doesn't know mercy, then your God is my devil. That isn't who God is. And that becomes very clear in the body of this text. But many times we fear. And our fear keeps us from doing what it is that we are called to do. And so in this parable, we have this person that because of fear refuses to use what has been given to him to steward by God, by the way, to bring forth good things through his life. He chooses instead to hide the talent. And I believe that that's the posture of many that are in the church. What's interesting about all of these stories is that these are insiders, these aren't people outside of the community of faith. These are people that have a, who they call master God and people that are part of the kingdom. People that are living blessed by this kingdom. One to the tune of $5 million. The other of two, uh, what was it? $1.6 million or $1.2 million and then 600000 This is a lot of currency starting $3 million. I didn't do my math right on the first person. You get me. I'm not a math teacher. I'm a preacher. So here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. Is that all of them were given much to dispense. But some aren't faithful. And fear will do that to all of us. There is no greater culprit to us living unfaithful than fear. Fear of what the outcome might be if I invest myself. Fear of what I might miss out on because I'm attracted or distracted by these things. And this is what the guy's problem is. He misunderstands who God is. Because his God is tyrannical. And he doesn't want to let God down. And so because he's afraid that if he does something he might do it the wrong way. So he withholds the talent and takes it and just shoves it under the earth and goes, I'll just keep it there. So I don't want to mess this thing up. This thing called the kingdom of God. I'll just bring problems to it. So let me just withdraw my grace from this place. I know that that sounds kind of strange that someone would do it, but we see it all the time. People describe God as Someone who is aloof or uncaring. They say, God, why 
isn't that you don't stop the issues that we're dealing with in our nation right now in the political climate. Why don't you intervene in the lives of the impoverished? Why don't you bring healing to this situation that I've been caring for all of these years? God, what are you doing? You should be doing something different than this. And we've heard those refrains. Perhaps you've recited some of them. Maybe not out loud, but in your heart. And to which our response when we hear those questions, which by the way, are marked in our news media all the time, are marked in the conversations around the water coolers at work. These conversations happen all the time. And they say, God, what are you doing? What have you done? What are you doing to stop this? To which our response should always be, God has already done everything that he needs to do. He has borne the cross, died suffering because of the cross, going into the grave and rising. But that's not where the story ends. He says in the Great Commission, all power and all authority have been given to me, therefore go. He says, my spirit will go with you, but all of the activity and all of God's work has been placed in the capable hands of the church. That you and I together are the capable extension of the very same things that God was doing before, only now. That the church is a bastion of hope for the hurting. It's a plan and a place of transformation for those that are weary. It is strength for the weak. It is healing for the infirmed. It is the place of God's grace and salvation. It is the power that resists the forces of hell. It is the church and the place, the institution, if you will, that God has said that the gates of hell would never prevail again. It is this place that we are called to be. We are the extension. So when we see racism in our community, God's answer to it is the church. When we see frustration in our spirit, God's answer to that is the encouragement that comes from the church. God has put his spirit, his essence the part of the Trinity, the Godhead, inside the community of faith to go forth in a different kind of power and a different kind of muscle. This is called ecclesiology, or to put it differently, what the character of the church should be. The continued work of God in the earth. But here's the frustrating problem. Is that our churches themselves are riddled with people that have been hiding those talents inside. They have refused to believe that they are the answer to the world's issues. And that we have all that we need to bring peace and hope and reconciliation and healing to our world. God says, this is how I want to bring my kingdom forth. It's through the church through you and I, God's answer to the problem is already in place. It's just that answer often sits dormant, hiding, waiting to be prepared for that perfect moment, awaiting for that epiphany of revelation so that I finally feel like I'm good enough to give what it is that I have. But that's not the character of the way that the kingdom is supposed to be. In our passage, we have 
a description of two different kinds of people. You've got the faithful and you've got the unfaithful. The faithful are going forth and they're marked by some qualities that they have and the unfaithful are marked by some qualities that they have. And so I just want to take a few minutes if I can and just maybe spell some of those out for you. The mark of the faithful will be that they are people of faith. People that believe that they already have what they need in Christ, not because they themselves are strong, but because Christ in them is, listen, always enough. And so they are willing to risk whatever, trusting that God is going to meet them on the other side of that risk. Now that's a whole lot of money to invest if you think about that in dollar terms. 1.2 million and 3 million dollars. That's a lot of money to invest on somebody else's behalf. And if your reward is connected to your success, then you have to feel like you have some sort of capability or do you? It isn't about your capability, but about the God that mingles with your talent. And when it's invested in, the, in, in any way, it starts to yield and return. Scripture says it like this. The word of God doesn't return to us empty. It comes back to us and helps us. And as people of faith, it is our job. It is our function to take steps of faith, bold and courageous steps, to push into our community. And when we see injustice, that we bring justice. That when we see brokenness, we bring the mending that offers healing. This is what faith looks like. In this sense, faith always has feet. Feet that are willing to walk. But the unfaithful are marked with fear. If I step out here, what are they, they going to think of me? If I pr- ask my coworker that's going through divorce if I can pray for them, like, what, what if it doesn't get better? And we put the impetus or the emphasis, if you will, on our ability rather than yielding to God's work in that moment. It's not our ability to make stuff happen, but to trust the one who has made us and given us the talent to produce what he wants out of that situation. It isn't about our capabilities, but always about God. And what we do is we hone our capabilities, but that shouldn't stop us until they're all ready to finally go into service. But brings us to the second skill that we see in the characteristic of the faithful. And that is that they are God-first people. Scripture says, at once... As soon as the master gave them the stuff, they at once went. You know what I found is that delay is the biggest killer of good intentions. We intend to do good things, but delay will always keep us from the very good things that God wants to do. Delay will always stop up the blessings that God has. But when we are God first people, we just trust that God is enough. I remember this one brother that got saved. This is when we were pastoring in Pennsylvania, our first stop in ministry some years ago. And there was this guy, his name was Tim. And Tim was immediately one of the greatest growth uh, projects that our church had. We just led Tim to Christ, and then Tim just started bringing lots of people to the church. And so all we needed to do was make sure that Tim came to Christ, and we were helping Tim along with his faith. And so every Sunday, there would be 25 people with Tim that came with Tim because Tim was not a Christian before. And when they saw God working in Tim's life, they wanted what God was doing. 
Tim did not have any degree. He didn't have any skill. He was not eloquent. But all he knew was one thing. Jesus Christ, him crucified in a demonstration of his power. Something of that hearkens to the biblical text itself. And this is not an admonishment against research and study. I am a committed student of those things. But I cannot delay waiting for an optimal time to do. I must put my talent to use at the level that I've been given. We're not judged by the amount that we produce, but by faithfulness to what it is we have. You see the difference? We're not judged by how much we do, but by the faithfulness of stewarding what it is that we have. At once, they go out and push into the world. At once, they go and try to bring a return on the master's uh, gift in their life. And what happens? They begin to see a yield. But on the opposite end of God first is me first. Self-preservation. In the Latin, we'd call this cravatus, this turning inward of the nature that is supposed to glorify and think and behold the beauty and the majesty of God that gets turned inward, thinking about ourselves. Maybe in our vocabulary, we call this something like narcissism, where it's all about us. Psychiatrists tell us that narcissism actually has its root in fear from insecurities that are always bounding forth in the heart of the one that's always thinking about themselves, falling short of ideals, failing to see that the, they have something better to live for. And because of that, they, they, there's this sense in which that there's a loss of perfection causing humiliation because you can never live up to your ideal. And no one else can live up to your ideal. And so you start imposing what it is that you expect others to be for you. And you won't even be that for them. And then you'll judge them because they didn't measure up to your impossible standards. And then we impose these sort of ideas upon our children. Wanting them to perform and live up to a standard that we have set for them. And somehow missing the mark over and over again. More disappointment. More nature being turned inward. I met this woman some years ago. Her name was Sue. Sue started out really good, man. She had a game for Christ everywhere she went. She was an evangelist and she would lead people to the Lord. But she had a sickness and the sickness affected her so much so that she could not see the world outside of her sickness. There would be people suffering right next to her and she would be trying to gain all of the attention for herself because she always imagined that her problems were worse than everyone else. Soon she actually improved and got better. But because she kept seeing herself through the lens of her sickness, that even when she was well, she was sick. Have you ever met anybody like this? That even when she could function and even when she could thrive and work and perform, she still saw herself as the sick person from before, riddled with fear, wondering what the future of her life would look like. And Sue began to turn so inward to herself that she was expelling everyone from her. Before long, even her kids didn't want much to do with her. And I remember coming into my office and crying and saying, Pastor, I don't know what to do. I, I know I, I've got to change, but I don't know how I can. I, I want some things that I can do to help. And so I'd list a series of things that they could do and I'd push them back. Three months later, they'd come back. Pastor, I don't know what to do. I said, did you do any of those things? I said, no, I want you to solve my problem. I said, I can't. The only thing that will solve your problem is you beginning to see a world outside of your sickness. You see, there's a soul sickness that comes from fear. 
misapprehending who God is will misapprehend, cause us to misapprehend who we are and who we're called to be. But not understanding the nature of God, if God is a tyrant in this case, like as in our parable, then we ourselves become tyrants and we start to manifest a world that looks a lot like the God that we project. And in time, that will always be destructive. The third characteristic of the faithful is that they are reproductive. What I mean here is that when our talents are used in the agency of God, it by its very nature will produce blessing and, and bound, bountiful blessing in the lives of those that we have conversation with. It's reproductive, meaning that it produces something beyond what it is that we have because we have put God first, because we are people of faith. There's something about our nature that's reproductive. Now, I've heard people through the years bemoan stuff about church and now having pastored at all different places and levels from uh, the, the, the large church in Jacksonville, Florida to the church in the high 800s in, in, in Pennsylvania or, or 700s. And now, now this church that we planted from nothing. But the problem is exactly the same in all of them. That we think that our talents don't need to be on display for the church to function as it's designed. And people will bemoan, well, what's wrong? Why haven't we started this ministry? Or why haven't we started that ministry? The church's function isn't to do what you tell it's us to do, but for the church to help you do what it is that God is calling you to do. There has never been a time in the history of my pastorate, by the way, that I have turned down any project from any person that had a passion to want to make a difference in the world. That we say, yes, listen, 100% of the time, let's start a, a, a clothing ministry. We're going to do it. Let's start a feeding ministry. You saw that we gave $38,000, 20, almost $21,000 for the food bank, an additional $18,000 in addition to that. We do it. We always get behind the ministry of the people, but that's the function of the church. It's not so that you can see how talented I am a pastor or how non-talented I am as a pastor, but instead for us to place your talents in service of the work of God. And that talent, by the way, will cause the church to be the voice and the light it's always been called to be. That you are the answer to the racism problem in our city. You, the church, me too. The, the problem and the answer to the poverty situation. We're the problem in so far as we don't realize that we're the answer to that. You are the prayer partner for somebody that's going through the divorce right now. You're the prayer partner for someone with the crazy kids right now. You are the conduit of the Spirit of God. And to deny that is to deny your faith. It is that strong. It is that strong the mark of the unfaithful I thought about using the word here unproductive like it doesn't produce but based on our text it's actually stronger than that it's destructive when we're afraid and we're living in fear it causes us to struggle with avoidance like we avoid reconciliation because the conversation is hard and makes me vulnerable, makes me uncomfortable. Therefore, I'm going to avoid that. I'm afraid of what that outcome might mean. So I'm going to take a step back. It's destructive. It destroys the community of faith and destroys us from being the witness that we're called to be. 
Second, loss of opportunities because we're called to be a people of faith. And if fear keeps us from taking the steps that we need to or having the conversations that we need to or, or doing what it is that God is asking us to do, what happens is, is that we miss the very blessing that God intends to bring into our life. It's interesting. I just heard this study cited again recently. And they were examining what it is that people regret. And it, it was really fascinating to me because people that had aged, they had a different thought than those that were young and didn't quite have it. So usually the people that were young said, I regret something I said. But once people had aged into retirement, they said, you know what I regret most about the life is this life is a risk I didn't take. When I knew that I should do something, but I was afraid of what the outcome might mean. I was afraid that I would fail God or somehow bring reproach upon God's kingdom. And so I didn't take the step back or just take a risk to start a business. Or take a risk to, to buy that land. Those things were the marks of the regrets of those that had aged and have passed their wisdom to us now. It's destructive because it also imposes unrealistic expectations on everyone. We expect the church to be something we're not willing to help it become. The church should be this for me. But then we, on the other hand, won't help him become that very virtue which you have just bemoaned it lacked. Could it be that the reason why you have a spotlight on that in your spirit is because God is whispering to your heart to step in and to do? But if the talent is always hid under the earth and we bring it back to God, here you have what you have, it's yours, you can have it back. We're good, right? Unfortunately, no. Because there's always a sense of reward and consequence that comes from faithful and unfaithful living. Now, I want you to think very clearly about what the scripture that we read earlier says about the reward. It says it like this, that they were given talents. One was given five, he produces 10. He ends up getting the one back from the one that was unfaithful, so now he has 11 talents. God never takes his investment back, never. He says, you've been faithful, now give him more. He's done well with what I've given him. This is his. This is like his possession too. It started as the master's, but now it's his. This is salvation, if you will. This is covenant. This is relationship. This is all of those things bound up in this exchange. It's now yours. And guess what? There's going to be even greater than this that you're going to do. I put you in charge of, this is small. You think this is big? This is small. Wait till you see what I give you next. You see, the mystery of the kingdom is this, is that the investments that we make for the Lord always yield back to us. A God-first life is the hope of what we offer to the world because when God is our priority, we see the blessings that come. I have never seen a God-first marriage fall apart. Never. Never once in my life. I've never seen a God-first person unhappy for long periods of time. Sure, they have their moments, but they always see the restorative power of God coming forth in their life. I've never seen a God-first person with a life that they would call failure. Never once. But I have had many conversations with people when God isn't first. Had to counsel many through their marriages where 
other priorities took the way of the relational place that the two belonged with together, which is despair. If there's reward on one side, there's despair on the other. It's important for us to recognize that that's, God wants your talents, my talents, in service for his kingdom because he longs for us to be used and for the power of God to be conduit through our hearts and lives to such, to such a degree that it affects positive change everywhere that we go. Could you imagine a place where we could eradicate brokenness, sickness, where there is no racial divide, where the p- political rancor has no power over the church because the church is too busy loving Jesus to care. This is what God wants for us. And he wants you to know that he has purposed you very specifically with your talents in this generation to be in service to bring forth his glory in every sphere of life that you walk in. At work, at the grocery store, at the restaurant this afternoon. That when those gifts are in service to the Lord, what happens is it just produces by itself as a virtuous cycle blessing back into your life. Running with purpose. One of my favorite lines from a movie is from a movie that I'm really too young to appreciate its full value because it came out. And I don't even know if I was alive yet. But if I was, I was too little to know. And it was really interesting. This little line in this movie is Chariots of Fire. Eric's sister was trying to talk him out of running in the Olympics. He's like, what are you wasting your time doing? You should go on the mission field and go give your life to the Lord this way. And he said to his sister, he's like, there'll be a time for the mission field. But right now, God has given me the talent to run. And when I run, I feel his pleasure over my life. I feel his pleasure, his smile looking down at me. Eric would run in the Olympics. And what's really interesting about his story, if you haven't seen the movie or, or read his uh, biography, it's he, he's supposed to run a particular race. I think it's the 400 meter. And he had trained to run the 400 meter race. The 400 meter race is going, but it happens on a Sunday when the final gold medal round is going to be done. He says, I've got to put God first. And he refuses to run the race. People are trying to talk him out of it. You know, God will understand. You can give God glory from the podium. He says, no, I told the Lord that I would always honor this day as sacred. So I've set it apart. That was his conviction. I'm not saying that he was right. I'm just saying it was conviction and he was all in on it. And so he refuses to run the race. And so they put him in a race he'd not trained for. The 800 meter, two times or a mile. I don't know. It's a lot further to run. And everybody, all the commentators said, there's no chance There's no chance that he's going to have any kind of success here. His body isn't. His running style's not adequate for this race. The the way that he, his gait, it's all wrong. He'll never succeed at running this race. But he's running anyway. The gun goes off and he's out of the block as a sprinter would in a very short race. And he's running with all of his might and he's giving it all he's got. And the commentators are saying, he's going to run out of gas. There's no way he can win. But run he does, and he never slows down, and he wins the race pretty handedly. And then he goes on the mission field, not just as a person that gave up running, but as a champion, sharing the story of how God used his life. 
God has wired each and every one of us to win the race in which we are running. Each of you are called to win your race. I wish I could win your race. I can't. I can only win mine. And you can only win yours. But I just want to ask you this question. If the church, this church, your church, was depending on your faithfulness to survive, would it survive? If the church, your church, this church, whatever church you attend, if it was depending on your faithfulness to survive, would it survive? That's really the crux of what this parable is trying to ask us. God is calling each and every one of us to execute our talents faithfully. It's destructive when we don't. And in fact, the scriptures more harshly and more ardently communicating this truth that the people that don't live in despair. Listen to the language. It's quite harsh. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Being cast into outer darkness. Now there's something about the eternity that, that, that this text is sort of hinting at. That this is the way the future will be. But that doesn't just push that off to some time in the distant future of, of, of heaven and hell and that kind of thing. It's actually talking about the despair that finds us even in this life. Could it be the reason why you are struggling with joy today is because your talent is hidden in the earth? Could it be the reason why you don't feel like you have a part today is because your talent is hidden in the earth. There will always be a despair that comes back to our hearts when our lives are not illumined with the gospel of transformation and hope for the world to see. And it's not just your talent, but all of our talents collectively together working to accomplish God's purposes in the earth in this time and in this generation. If we're frustrated about what we see in politics, the church is the answer. If we're frustrated about the numbers of people that we see suffering in our city, the church is the answer. If we're, suffer we're troubled because they don't have clean drinking water in Uganda, then the church is the answer because that's how God has decided to solve the problems. He's placed it in us. His spirit, his power, his anointing, his grace lies in our talents, yours, mine. And somehow together it accomplishes God's kingdom. It builds it forth. So which servant are you? For a lot of us, we're kind of both. Moments of faithful. Moments of unfaithful. Moments of faith. Moments of fear. But God is not a tyrant. In fact, he bestows all of the blessing that the workers work for back on them. What tyrant would do such a thing? tyrant would grace them with all of the property and its management and its process and growth. What tyrant would do that? That's not a picture of the kingdom. I'll invite the worship team to come back up.
I think sometimes that's why we miss the mark. It's because fear keeps us from living the way that we should. And the Lord today is calling us out of our fear, calling us into a whole different life. And, but sometimes we've got to sit for a minute with that despair. With the places of dissonance in our heart where there's some disconnect between what we should be and where we are to draw us into the new place that God desires us to go. I was talking to a woman a few years back, Cheryl. And she calls me on the phone and she's frantic. And she says, Pastor, I need to see you. There's no time to make appointments. I extended my day and said, I'll meet you. Just meet me at this particular time in my office. We'll have a conversation. Cheryl shows up and says, Pastor, I've blown it big time. I said, what happened? She said, there was a fellow at work I saw. He was struggling. His name was Bob. And I knew that I, I felt in my heart that I was supposed to share with Bob. I was supposed to. Tell him about God's love. I saw that he was dejected. I knew that his life and his family was not going well, that things were going bad. And, but I figured tomorrow I'll do it. Tomorrow I'll, I'll have the conversation. I know that I should. And I showed up at work, and they said Bob was gone. He had taken his own life. And I just feel so guilty, Pastor. I, don't, I know I was supposed to be the answer, but I wasn't. It's a hard moment for me. I just, can I just confess that? Because it, on one hand, I feel the responsibility to like hug and console and Yet the Spirit was also doing something, trying to prod and say, yes, you're right. You were the answer that I intended for that moment and to lament the failure. To cry the tears of missing the mark. To be overwhelmed with the grief of the loss of a life that needed the hope of the cross. She needed both. So we cried together until the tears finally stopped flowing. And I said, you know, I'm sorry that you went through that. I know the pain is real. But we can't do anything about Anything that's happened yesterday, the only thing we can do is affect change for the future. So you're going to have to let that go. The Lord's comfort, His grace is here to offer you forgiveness, to offer you a new start, a new beginning. Come on, let's do it together. So when the next Bob shows, this will be different. When the next opportunity comes, you'll be a little bit more brave. Sometimes that's the hard part about the pastoral task because I wanted to tell her it's going to be all right, but sometimes it's not unless we're willing to change and allow the cross to come and to penetrate the deepest places of our soul and to challenge us, to tell us when we're not right, 
and to cause us to live into the hope of a God that bountifully just and lavishly just pours out his abundance upon us to be used for his glory. Don't let fear stand in the way. Today is a day of new beginnings. And I feel like there's no better way to make a new start than around the Lord's table of communion. Someone will call the ushers forward and if they begin to serve the congregation. The passage that we're going to read from is in Luke today. What's really interesting here is that there is this space of dissonance as well. The cross event has already happened and they're wondering what the next step is. And Jesus meets them on the road of this walk and reminds them or tells them that because he's risen, there's always an opportunity for his new life to come. I'm going to read. I'm going to add a bit of narrative along the way to help us to make the connections with our world today. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. Before God all and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to eradicate the problems that we're dealing with in our households. We had hoped that God could settle the issues that were going on in our government. We had hoped that God could handle the issues that I'm dealing with with my sick grandmother. We had hoped that God could redeem these broken spaces in our lives. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his joy? And with beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That it wasn't just about God coming, but about God filling us. My commentary again. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. 
But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it. And said, this is my body. As Paul would later recount. But here Jesus just breaks the bread. Took the bread, gave thanks, breaks it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures for us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Jesus is recognized in our world when we break the bread. Here in symbol and memory, but wouldn't it be strange for Jesus who abolishes a lot of ceremonial law to impose some other ceremony? It was always meant to be more. That this is not just a commemorative meal where we gather around and say, look how great God is. By the way, that would be plenty of reason. But it was more. It was an opportunity for us to remember who we are in him. To remember that he has called us and he has placed his spirit inside of us. And reminding us for those spaces in our life that are broken, he was broken. But he didn't stay that way. He was resurrected and came out new so that healing could come to all that gather around his broken body. And we are called to bring that message with our talents to the world. To live exceptional lives in the workplace, so much so that the innovation that we produce causes the company to grow and prosper. When opportunity comes, we're clear to give testimony to where the power came from. I believe since the source of life lives inside of us, that this bastion of hope is also a place of innovation where miracles can come, ideas can flow, and the power of the Spirit can make us alive. You've got talent. Today, God wants to heal you so that talent may be used and work for his glory. Heavenly Father, we hold in our hands the elements of your body and blood. I pray, Lord, that you would do something of mysterious wonder in this place and cause us to recognize your work here now. On this rainy Sunday morning where we give you praise for the rain, you have brought these here to hear this message. Had they come another week, they would have missed it. But you have purpose for them to hear it because you have a plan for them. Maybe this morning you come and you need a reconciliation moment in your own life because you feel broken. Maybe Christ has never been Lord of your life. Or maybe today you just need a new touch of grace and the Spirit of God to enter into you anew. 
If that's you today, I just invite you to pray along with me in this prayer. Heavenly Father, I need you in my life. I want my talent to be at your service. And I want to be a part of the answer. Not a perpetuator of the problem. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. And give me new life through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, Father, use these elements and help them, Lord, to accomplish their supernatural end in us and through us. In Jesus' name. Let's take the bread together. Now the cup. We're about finished. But I just want to sit for just one moment with what it is that we've just heard. To allow the work of the cross to penetrate us so decisively that we're never the same. to have an instead moment. What are we going to do different when we leave this place? Remember what I said, delay is always the very thing that hijacks the great purposes of God in our lives when we put it off. And God wants each of us to respond in a unique way. And so I don't know how it is it works for you, but when I'm making plans, I like to write them down so that I have to visit them again. And so I take, tend to take out my smartphone in the notes section. I'll pen some stuff down. I want to do this. Or this is a good thought. I want to keep this. But if you don't have an instead moment, it's probably going to be a lot like it was before you came. And so we're going to sing about the blood of Jesus. And as we do, I want you to really internalize this. Allow God to encourage you of how your talents can be in service to him. And bring forth his purposes in the earth. Worship team, lead us. You can worship. You can come kneel at the altar. You can... Respond however you want, but let's 100% respond in whatever way we feel the Lord leading us. Worship team lead. Join Pastor Shane of Covenant Life Church next time for another powerful and inspirational message. To find out more about Covenant Life Church, log on to www.covenant-life.com or call 919-462-1932. Remember, living life without direction is meaningless. Living a purpose life with direction from Jesus Christ is your life fulfilled.